You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. And welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest, Dr. Susan Hasmiller. Uh, Dr. Hasmiller is currently serving as the Senior Scholar in Residence and Senior Advisor to the President on Nursing at the National Academy of Medicine and as a key member of the leadership team for the Future of Nursing 2030 report. She is also a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Senior Advisor for Nursing and directs the Foundation's Future of Nursing Campaign for Action. Dr. Hasmiller is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine, a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing, and sits on other advisory committees and boards, including the American Red Cross. She is a recipient of numerous awards and three honorary doctorates and has received the Florence Nightingale Medal, which is the highest international honor given to a nurse by the International Committee of the Red Cross. So welcome to the show, Dr. Hasmiller. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you, I'm, I'm, I, I have to admit uh, uh, this is a bit uh, self-serving because I've always wanted to sit down and talk to you and having this opportunity is a great honor on my part. Um, oh, that's great, yeah. I, so, I love doing this during uh, nurses, this is uh, National Nurses Day too. It is. It is. And happy yeah. National Nurses Day and National Nurses Week. Uh, so I have to. Uh, so I always like to start with uh, finding out how uh, my guests uh, got into nursing in the first place and how they they uh, set their path uh, when when they got into the profession. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Hasmal, how did you get started in the nursing profession? That was an easy one for me. It was my mother. My mother was a nurse. She was a graduate of Bellevue, uh, New York City, a very famous hospital. And uh, she was there as a cadet corps nurse. She was quite poor coming out of the depression and was looking for um, a way forward for herself and for her family. Uh, she She was very young. And so she saw this billboard in New York City that said, be a nurse. And, uh, it, you know, if we can sign up and pass the test, then the federal government pays your way. So she did that. She passed the test. She went to New York City, Bellevue, and she was one of those nurses with the starch white uniform and the cap and the spick and span shoes and the white stockings. And I saw this growing up. And, you know, she never pushed me into being a nurse at all. Um, but on occasion, I would go to the hospital. And what did it for me, Ollie, was uh, really talking. Sometimes she would bring me in. It was more informal in those days. And sometimes she would bring me into some of her patients' rooms, uh, patients who stayed quite some time, not like today when you're in and out. 
And the patients would say, oh, my gosh, your mother is so incredible. She saved my life. She's so great with my family. And the more I heard about my mother, which I didn't have this image of her, you know how it is growing up, um, you hear the other side of the story, I thought, wow, this is what a nurse does. This is like amazing. And so I became a candy striper and then a nurse's aide and then became a nurse. And I loved it. And I will be completely honest with you. I have never, ever wanted to be anything else. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, how was the new graduate process uh, when you got into nursing? How was that experience for you? Well, it was much more informal than it is today. If you're fortunate enough to be with a large health system, and I realize that nurses uh, going right into ambulatory care or in the community don't have necessarily the option of a, of a mentorship or a residency. And, and that's really how it was in, in those days. I graduated, and I'm going to sh be showing my age here, but I went to a two-year community college first. I didn't, I didn't mention that, um, you know, we might get into that, but went right on for my baccalaureate degree, but right out of my community college degree, um, I was, you know, very young, 20 years old. It was the early seventies and um, there was no mentorship residency programs at all. It's you just, you know, you finish your program and then you start working on the floor and it was quite intimidating. And even as a person who grew up with a mother who was a nurse and, and then a candy striper and a nurse's aide, it was pretty intimidating, the, you know, the responsibilities that you had very, very early on, that you were responsible for people's lives. And I, I really felt that. And it was daunting. And there was a time, probably two months then, um, where... The stress was really very intense. I, as I said, there was no residency or mentorship. And I remember laying on the couch coming home from work one night thinking, oh, my gosh, this is just so much responsibility. I hope I made the right decision. Um, but it was fleeting, and I stayed, and I, I've loved every bit of my career. Uh, thank you, Sharon. I don't think those feelings are any different even with a residency or a or a new grad program it's still coming home I'm like oh my god did i make any mistakes or what yeah. did i do or yeah, uh, so yeah. I, I, those feelings i think are across the board regardless of uh, as a novice nurse uh, i think that's one of the things that i think i remember the most is like i was hoping like as long as i didn't you know hurt anyone i'm good uh, I know. Yeah, it's, it's really quite amazing. And when you see, uh, you know, we'll probably get into it later. But when you I, I think for the first time, people are really seeing on TV because of the, the pandemic, they are following nurses. They're in the newspaper, they're in the news. And I think people for the first time are really seeing the actuality of what nurses do, you know, albeit during a pandemic. Um, but it's still the job that they do, and it's really awesome. Yeah, very, very proud of uh, of, uh, of all the nurses that are uh, out there, and you know, healthcare professionals, and anybody that's still uh, out there um, working, making sure uh, the country is still moving forward. I think it's it's amazing the work that everybody's doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, 
So one of the things I always talk about uh, with at least my students or people I have the privilege of, you know, uh, mentoring, um, I always talk about planning their career. And you've had an incredible career so far. Um, how did you how did you navigate your nursing path? Uh, and how did you like some it wasn't I'm sure it wasn't accidental that you just uh fell into this incredible career. I'm sure some planning went into that, into it. How did you navigate that process? Well, you're giving me more credit for <laughs> the strategic plan that I might have had than I, that I really, uh, really, really had in the first place. I, I would say, you know, if anything has guided my career, it's been passion Be, and, and saying yes, because I, I, I see the students, uh, you know, the young people that I'm mentoring now, and, and I really um, advise them to be strategic and, and write out a plan and determine how to get there. And I help, I help a lot of people get to where they want to get to. And I, I love that. That's a, the best part of my job in my life now. But it wasn't, it wasn't that strategic for me, actually. I, I was in acute care and <clears throat> I remember being, on the coronary care unit. And it was like a revolving door. You know, people would, even in the early days, people would um, come in and, and they have a lot of heart disease. They maybe needed some surgery and tests and medications. And, you know, I did the same thing that nurses do now, try to talk about diet and prevention and everything, but people kept coming back. It's just a revolving door. And I didn't really know that there was such a thing called public health per se. But in my head, I thought, you know what, there's got to be a better way than people coming in, you know, we would call them frequent flyers now, but coming in all the time. And I thought maybe prevention and prevention was just coming into its own uh, in the 70s. I think the President's Council on Physical Fitness uh, was started during that time, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And a lot of talk about prevention. I said, you know, that's what I want to get into, prevention. I got to prevent people from being sick in the first place. So I, 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 I did that. And I, I, I actually went into the community. And, and my first job um, outside of acute care was with the American Red Cross. And you talk about not being strategic. How that happened was, um, I, was I went back to school. And when I came home one day, it was sort of house sitting while my parents were on vacation in Mexico City. And I saw this trailer across the television set. And in those days, this was the 70s, there's no cell phone, there's no anything like that. Anybody would recognize. Um, you'd have to go into very old movies to know that what we had back then was a dial phone. So I saw on the television set when I was home that there had been an earthquake in Mexico City and I was um, quite nervous and upset. My parents were there and how do I get in touch with them? And I just didn't know. So I dialed zero for operator and I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm upset. I just thought there was an earthquake. My parents were there. And she said, I can't help you, but I know an organization that can. And she clicked me over um, again, a very old sort of maneuver in those days, <laughs> clicking someone over by the operator. She clicked me over to the Red Cross and connected me to a, a wonderful, extraordinary woman who talked me down and talked me through 
um, how she was going to help me and how she was going to help me find my parents in Mexico City. And uh, she did over the course of a day or two, something that would now take a mere seconds and minutes. Um, she, she told me that um, the electricity was down, but um, nobody had been killed. So she told me the basics. So, so that was my first impression of this extraordinary organization called the American Red Cross. And when I, when my parents got back home, I went back up to college and I went straight to 924 North Gadsden Street, which was the local Red Cross in Tallahassee, Florida, where I was getting my baccalaureate at, at uh, Florida State University. And I walked in and I said, you don't know me, but you helped me find my parents. You saved my parents. And I'm here to do whatever I can for this unbelievable organization. And so that was really getting involved in the Red Cross. It wasn't strategic. I happened into it and I worked for them. My very first job outside of acute care was to be a director of nursing and health services for um, the region where that Red Cross served. And um, from there, um, I met my husband and I, I knew that prevention and community, and I had gotten into disaster work at that time too. So a lot of work with disaster. Um, and then I met my husband, we moved to Nebraska, and then my first job there was at a state health department. And I worked, um, I worked full-time as a, a public health nurse um, part-time for the Centers for Disease Control for a program they were um, involved with, and then part-time um, as a public health nursing supervisor. So then from there, I taught public health at two different universities. I eventually, and, and then in Nebraska, I, I was a, a public health nurse at the local level. So that was that's how I that's how I made the tradition. It was a complete accident and it was a tragedy. And I will tell you um, tragedies and maybe we'll get to that a little bit later, but a tragedy is what brought me to um, my, um, my most recent, um, if you will, uh, area of passion, which is compassion and uh, at the front lines. And it has to do with um, losing my husband in a bicycle accident but maybe we'll get to that in a little bit. But I think you can see that, um, you know, other than strategically knowing that I did want to teach, I love teaching. So I was reaching out um, in that realm. And then when I got into teaching, they eventually said, you know, you have to have masters and PhDs and to teach as you know, very well. And so that, that path was charted for me as well, because I, really thought I was going to stay in teaching. And so um, when I was in my PhD program, it was a, a it was a, a, a degree in nursing administration and health policy. Um, that was George Mason University. And so as part of that PhD program, they wanted you to have a policy experience. So I did just that. My policy experience was working um, at the federal government in public health at HRSA, Health Resources, uh, Health Services and Resources Administration. So my whole career has really been in the community, public health, uh, policy, and um, that is it in a nutshell, Allie. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, I didn't really get to how I got to the to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We're so, gonna we're gonna hit we're gonna hit okay, that we'll in a bit, but I definitely we'll want to talk about that. Yeah. But I just wanted to say um, it, it's a, it's it's I don't know. It, somebody may have already thought about this, but what I call uh, real time strategic planning when it comes to careers, because it sounds like opportunities presented themselves and you stepped through that door where you didn't have to. Uh, but it's, right. uh, but you definitely uh, saw opportunities and went through and prepared yourself. And uh, I think so. I think yeah. that's how it happened. I saw opportunities, and and as um, you know, as I said before, you go with your passion. You do what you think you're good at. You be sure to say yes when opportunities come your way. I've I've met a lot of uh, nurses along the way that have said no and. Um, you know, that they chart their own path that way by saying no. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons uh, I got my PhD. I, I, I always tell uh, my, some of my colleagues and my students, I said, I never wanted to be in a situation where opportunity presented itself. I wanted it say, I wanted to say yes, but didn't have the degree for it. Uh, yeah. That was one of my uh, drivers uh, other than, uh, you know, uh, if I, if I showed you my high school, um, uh, uh, transcripts, you would have never thought I'd be at this point in my life. I, I, was, not a, I was not a shining student in high school, but uh, things turn around. Uh, yeah, they thank, do. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, so um, thank you for sharing your, that, that's an incredible story. I mean, just the fact that you've dedicated such a, uh, such a significant uh, part of your career to uh, community and public health is amazing. So thank you for doing that. Um, so yeah, let's talk about your current roles, uh, and you have several of them, uh, one with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the other with the Future of Nursing uh, 2030 report. So let's start with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. How did you get into that role? So <clears throat> I was working at the federal government at the time, and um, I was actually very much into uh, primary care policy. The person I was working for was responsible for pr primary care policy uh, within the federal government and workforce. And so um, at that time, I was directing a policy fellowship. And that was, was quite an exciting time in my life uh, to help develop a national policy fellowship where um, professionals, both physicians, nurses, and some others got to come to Washington, D.C. for a period of three weeks and over a year, learn policy and research around primary care. And it was, it was quite exciting. That's when I really got involved um, in that round policy uh, quite heavily and learned our political system very well. Um, so it was at that time when I got a call from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I, I'd never heard of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation but they said they had a program, a national program that they were starting called Partnerships for Training, Primary Care Partnerships for Training. And it was going to be a program that brought together nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants, and certified nurse midwives together to learn interdisciplinarily and then practice uh, together so they, they would understand, better understand each other's roles. But it turned out it was a, you know, a big national program as Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has. And as these programs go, they always have national advisory committees. 
And so they were calling me to see if I would serve on this national advisory committee. So I did so. Um, and then probably a year out after the advisory committee had met a couple of times and I helped them do site visits around the country, uh, one of the vice presidents at the, at the foundation said, you know, we have an opening at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Would you be interested in coming to work for us? And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't really know what you do, but I don't really think so. I'm happy in Washington, D.C. area. Um, by that time, I was very, very involved in the Red Cross at the national level uh, where their headquarters is. We had just built a house. My kids were, you know, one was going into high school, one into seventh grade. So I said no, but they kept asking me. And then at what time they said, well, just come to the foundation and talk to a few of us. It's like, you know, one of those scenarios where you come and look at the puppies. You don't have to buy a puppy, <laughs> but you do look at them, right? It was part of their the, the game. So I went to the foundation and I learned what they did. And I was extremely impressed um, that they had this very large endowment uh, originally started by Robert Wood Johnson of the Johnson and Johnson fame. And they got to um, really pay attention to the health and healthcare issues of our country and strategize um, programming and, and grants and research around, you know, how we might address these big challenges. And to me, that became very exciting to be part of a large national policy strategy scene. And so very fortunately, I had a husband who agreed with the move and my kids had to come along whether they wanted to or not. And that was in 1997 that I started with the foundation. And I have, I've done a lot there. Uh, first of all, I went there doing primary care and then public health. So I've always, I've always stayed in that realm, but, but that's, that's the foundation too. They are, they are more of that ilk. And then eventually um, we had a, a nursing team or a nursing department, a nursing team at the foundation. And um, there was a lot of pro and I, I headed that up and we had a lot of programming, you know, many, 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 many millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, to uh, nursing programming and education and research and policy and leadership. And it was really the heyday of nursing. And then our then board chair, Tom Kane, who was the former governor of New Jersey, and you might recognize his name as the co-chair of the 9-11 commission, Tom, Tom Kane, um, said, you know, we ought to have a blue ribbon national nursing commission. And so he wanted that, the board wanted it. We tried to figure out how we would have the most high level elite nursing commission ever. So we decided to talk to the Institute of Medicine and um, that's when I decided, or I didn't decide, my president asked me if I would uh, actually go to the Institute of Medicine and head up this commission. Uh, which I did. And, um, you know, the rest of that history, as you know, is the is the report called The Future of Nursing, Leading Change, Advancing Health, which was launched at the end of 2010. 
which was uh, which was profound in my career because like I think I, I shared with you earlier uh, that's what you know I when I looked at that report I said what how can I contribute and when I saw the double the number of doctorally prepared I'm like I can do that and uh, and that's how I got my PhD so so thank you for that report because it was a game changer for me as well at the time you know my my president at the time said, it's one thing to do a report and this in the Institute of Medicine, now it's called the National Academy of Medicine. But she said there are dozens and dozens of reports, you know, high level blue ribbon panel reports that come out. But she said, I don't want this one to sit on a shelf. And that's when I went to uh, AARP thinking who better to partner with um, who cares about the general public and their well-being than AARP. And that's when we started the Center to Champion Nursing in America. And that's where our operations headquarters is now for this vast and national campaign that we have to implement that first report, Allie. That's fantastic. Uh, now, talking about that report a little bit more specifically, um, how did you put that team together? Like, um when you were looking at uh, who you were going to partner with to put that report together, how did that come about? Well, that that process is is pretty cut and dry. If you if if you have enough money, in other words, if you're the federal government, if you're a large foundation, if you have a lot of money, you can go to the Institute of Medicine, now National Academy of Medicine, and you can say, I think this topic is really critical to study and have recommendations on. And once the the academy decides your subject is worthy enough to uh, study, then it's really then a, a very much of a closed door process. They say because they want it to be um, bias free. They don't want any outside influences because any report that comes out of the National Academy of Medicine has to be based completely on evidence and research. And uh, those that's where the recommendations come from. And they can't be biased by uh, hearsay and advocacy and, and, and all that. So they bring together um, um, a group of advisors on a committee and, uh, and they're experts in that subject matter, very highly, highly vetted. And so that's what we did the first time. We had a highly vetted committee and, and then closed the door. It was very unprecedented that I got to go in to help lead this like I am doing now with this second report. Uh, they had never done that at the Institute of Medicine. Once you turn over your money and your idea, they close the door because of bias and they get their own, they have their own staff there. They, they get their uh, group of experts and they deliberate and they collect research and deliberate and discuss and, and everything. Then they come up with a series of recommendations, as you know. Um, but it was quite different for me to be there. And it was an honor to really be part of that and to help lead that effort. Uh, now, I know uh, the report, uh, you know, it had more than sat on the shelf because we had the states that developed uh uh, that have representation, um, the Action Coalition. Um, That's right. 
Um, can you talk about how that uh, came to be? Because uh, on a state level, things need to change on a state level. And given the fact that the IOM at the time um, put out this report saying these changes need to take place, um, how, how did the state's uh, action coalitions uh, uh, come into play and uh, what's their role? Yeah. <clears throat> so this is a good lesson for um, perhaps even students and, and others who um, who want to study movements and campaigns. Um, this is a good lesson because you have to really start engaging people. I, I, I explained earlier that um, putting together a report and deliberations and recommendations is quite a closed door session. But I know from working at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, we have a very big communications machine there. It's very robust. And so I have really been schooled in media and, and public engagement and, you know, how to get the attention of uh, important people's ears. So I knew that even though we were working behind closed doors, we had to uh, foreshadow and engage and get get the nursing community excited about this report. So even, even then, um, we had town hall meetings and, um, you know, I'm not sure we had webinars then, it, you know, the process this time, which we'll get to. I did a lot more engagement, engagement, but I did a lot of things. I did a lot of public speaking, all, all to the effect of trying to get the nursing community like pumped up. This is for you. This is going to be your report. You're going to have to take this and run with it. You're going to have to follow these recommendations. And, 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 you know, this is going to be a great thing for nursing. And so by the time the report came out, we had a very big launch in Washington, D.C. A lot of people there, 600 people. We had a big press conference. So many people were on the press, the call for the press conference that the whole system crashed, which I was very upset about at the time. But now it gives me bragging rights. Um, but you see, so much engagement was fostered that people wanted to do what they could. Like you said, you got it and you wanted to be involved. And so I very quickly with AARP and the Center of Champion Nursing America, we had to come up with a process by which we would involve and involve people. How would we do this? So I talked to different organizations like the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, the American Heart Association, other organizations that had campaigns. So all of a sudden I was this nurse and then I was this educator and clinician and then I was this policy person. And now all of a sudden I'm trying to run a campaign. How do you run a campaign? I talked to a, you know, a couple of political people. How do you do campaigns? And so I, I, I learned. I learned from them. And we sort of built the plane and flew it at the same time. But it was really um, how we got action coalitions together. And all we said was we started with five states, California, your, your city in California, uh, California was uh, one of those states, and it was because um, the states were chosen based on who um, the people that I knew there and, and I trusted, and I knew that they would have a process that they could put together. And when they said, well, what do we do to get started on an action coalition? I said, I don't know. Why don't you just take the the report and gather some people around that you know and trust and who really want to get some work done 
and come up with a plan as to how you're going to implement recommendation one, two, three, 15, 23. And that's how the action coalitions got started. Again, it was um, sort of an informal process that very, very quickly turned formal, formal. And then we had to have applications because other states were clamoring to get in. And so we developed an application process. Uh, eventually, all 50 states, 50, 51 because of the District of Columbia, became an action coalition. And uh, the rest of is, is that kind of history. Given uh, some, some things have come out of those action coalitions, like, for example, the bridge programs that have increased the number of BSNs, uh, and some dollars have come out as a, in supporting doctoral and you know, well, um, nursing in general, nursing education. I hear from 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 nurses once in a while. Well, not once in a while. Uh, usually, time and and money tends to be the biggest barrier for nurses moving into uh, another degree or moving into um, academic positions where where there's a huge need for nurses to go into. Um, and then once you get like a PhD or doctoral degree, um, uh, capacity for for jobs, right? Not, you know, institutions don't build a lot of capacity, especially on the service side, uh, for doctorally prepared nurses. Um, how do you foresee the the this report continuing to have the the impact it has had so far, but making sure we're building capacity as far as uh, dollars for nursing education and looking at building capacity for these uh, doctorally prepared nurses. So when you when you when you uh, run a campaign or if you run a program of any kind and just say you're trying to make change, right? Let's just say you're trying to make change. Could be anything. Um, you know, your job is about influence. Who can you influence to um, come over to your side of the street? And so let's just take the eighty twenty recommendation: getting more nurses to a baccalaureate degree. So it wasn't just a matter of telling nurses in this country, you need to get more educated, right? You need to convince um, chief nursing officers that that's who they want to hire. You have to convince CEOs of health systems that um, if you want to hire more baccalaureate nurses, that you're going to have to pay for their education, because you're not always going to have the supply that you want. And if you want to reach this goal, if you want to be as safe as possible, if you, if you, you know, if you want baccalaureate educated nurses, you're gonna have to pay for that. So then, then you get into policies and then you work with organizations like magnet um, uh, who then put a criteria for uh, even applying for a magnet um, even to apply for magnet, you had to have a plan for how you were going to reach 80-20. So you put policies in place. And then you talk to people like the federal government um, because, again, if your goal is to get more baccalaureates, you need more people, you need more money, right? You, you've alluded to that. So then you have to work with the federal government as well for more scholarships, then I had to work with my own foundation and other foundations to support programs around furthering nursing education. So it's like this big, massive plan. If you really want something to happen, 
it's not a simple write a recommendation and people are going to fall in line. You're going to have to work with a lot of different people across disciplines. And that's the value of interprofessional collaboration and multidisciplinary collaboration uh, and putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Uh, you know, I'll use one more example of, uh, of scope of practice. We want more states, including California. We know that California is lagging horribly in terms of um, full practice authority for, for advanced practice nurses. But I've talked to legislators before, and, and here's what I say, you know, because it's with them, they have to get over listening to, if you want to be honest, the medical community saying that nurse practitioners and the like are unsafe, right? So really, really having information, accurate information, facts about uh, the safety and the quality of APRNs is not enough. It has to be an economic issue as well. So I've, I've been famous for talking to legislators and saying, look, you've passed all of all of this legislation in your state for universities to provide all of this education for nurse practitioners and advanced practice nurses. And then you're graduating, Mr. Legislator, all of these nurses in your state, and they can't even practice what they learned in school. Now you tell me if that's a good ROI. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm a little bit uh, disappointed in California as well for not having moved. We all are. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I was hoping we'd be further along than we are. Uh, we've had some bills that have come through and just have not moved uh, where we would like them to move and uh, advancing our uh, uh, nurse practitioners into full scope of practice, which I think you know it, it needs to be done. I mean. Uh, if this pandemic has not uh, convinced people that we need more uh, full scope of practice, especially in rural areas where we don't have uh, a huge presence uh, uh, of medical centers and things like that, I think uh, there's definitely a huge need for nurse practitioners to have that full scope of practice. Uh, so yes, that, definitely. I definitely agree with you. Um, so this report, uh, there's a new report that's going to be coming out for the 2030 reports. And I, I had the pleasure of sitting on one of the uh, sessions that you had uh, via uh, internet uh, and listen in on the 2030 report of, uh, I think it was your first session that you put out. Uh, so can you uh, share with us what's going on with the 2030 report? Right. <clears throat> so so the 2030 reports is called the 2020 2030 report. I don't know what the official title is going to be yet, but this report was to be um, uh, an answer to how we were going to use all of the capacity we have now built in our nursing profession. If you wanted, if if you want to take it as the first report was a lot about building capacity in the nursing workforce. You know, go back and get more education, a baccalaureate, a doctorate degree, uh, be on a faculty, um, make sure your profession is diverse, make sure you're sitting on boards. So if you want to take it as such that the first report about was about capacity building, the second report is about, okay, now that we have built our capacity, and of course we still, that's ongoing, we're never going to finish building our capacity, but for the sake of this conversation, now that we've built our capacity, what are you going to do nursing 
uh, profession with all this capacity. And it's really to address um, what my foundation is really very passionate about and spending all of its money on, and that is the inequities in this country. Uh, you know, paying attention to the social determinants that people have in their lives, lack of education, lack of transportation, everything that's coming to light in this pandemic um, is really going to be the crux of this next report. So it's really how will nurses address, uh, help to address the social determinants in our country and in inequities and uh, now with COVID, we, we're going to have some really very vivid um, descriptions about how, um, how nurses might do this. Again, it's another behind the closed door um, committee, as all the committees are. I am there as a senior scholar helping to lead this effort. And we have a, an extraordinary committee. The report was due to be launched this December, but because of the pandemic and COVID, we are delaying the report by about six months so that we can bring in all this extra information. Um, and so our report, when it is released, it doesn't appear tone deaf to the nursing community. Uh, we would never want to come out with a report that didn't give credence to everything our extraordinary profession has been um, doing over the last uh, couple of months here. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, when we look at the inequities and the social determinants of health, uh, especially like you mentioned, the COVID, the COVID nineteen uh, definitely has brought a lot of that uh, to life uh, in an unfortunate way. We knew they existed, but now uh, it's very much in our face. So, how do we uh, address that? Now, I have a question for you uh, regarding. Um, nurses wanting to be involved uh, in these reports, uh, like more active involvement, how can they, how can they do that? How can they move forward or build, um, uh, build a, uh, not necessarily a career, but like, a, uh, how can they get more involved? Let's say they're bedside, or let's say they're in academia, doing what they're doing. Uh, how can they do uh, more in supporting uh, these reports? Well, as you know, because you you said in the beginning you were you had the uh, honor uh, of listening in on one of the town halls that we had. We had three big town hall meetings: one in Philadelphia, another in Chicago, and another in Seattle, where um, hundreds were in the audience and thousands and thousands were um, online. So we've heard from many, many people. Once people go to the website, the National Academy of Medicine website, and they look at the statement of task that the committee is charged to study and then make recommendations on. We've had many um, hundreds of nurses come forward um, um, emailing us on their thoughts and, um, you know, their ideas. And we take everything uh, into consideration. Everything is a matter of public record even though it's a closed process, it sounds kind of weird. Everything is, is a matter of public record. And then, of course, when the report does come out, um, let's just say in late spring, early summer, um, there'll be lots for everyone to do again. Just, just like the first report was a blueprint, 
and you read the chapters on leadership and and um, you know education and everything, and then there are recommendations. You will see, and and not everyone will be attuned to or feel passion for every single recommendation, but that's the beauty of a report with a number of recommendations because any number of people can choose what they want and and move forward with it. You yourself said you were compelled to go back and get your doctorate degree. Uh, you're teaching. Um, you know, you're on faculty, and that certainly was a very, very, very important component of the first report. So you really took heed of, of that advice, and I really commend you for that. And hopefully you and your followers will do the same for this next report. Thank you. Um, now, is there any plans to build, you mentioned capa capacity, is there any plans to uh, build capacity for the state level action coalitions to not only continue with the first report, but also add this additional component to them? Yeah, most assuredly. In fact, we, we just, this is a little bit of inside baseball, if you will, but we just sent an application out or a questionnaire out to all of our action coalitions um, because even our action coalitions and the, the things that they have been working on over the last 10 years has changed. Uh, over the last, I would say, two or three years, we've really been gearing our action coalitions more towards what I call building a culture of health and paying attention to social determinants and inequities. And so our action coalitions have been seeped in that uh, material, if you will, over the last couple of years. And so they're prime now going forward with this next report. And so we queried them, you know, do you want to continue as an action coalition? So I would say that um, almost all of them said yes. So that I think that answers your, your question. We never know, you know, how much money or support or anything like that, but we can say that the nursing community is still uh, highly engaged. What a wonderful profession to be part of, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the things that I've, you know, uh, that I have seen. Uh, and, and you know, uh, you're on Twitter, and I know that's where, that's actually one place I have found a fantastic nursing community of yeah. uh, actively engaged nurses is and looking at the the work that they're doing in real time is has been absolutely amazing. Uh, so yes, definitely, it's it's the it's the people I have managed to surround myself have been uh, are very charged uh, individuals, and they're definitely uh, still very much engaged and these types of reports and uh, working with things like social determinants of health and inequities. And um, so, yes, very privileged to be in the, in the profession of nursing. Uh, anything else you'd like to share with our audience? So, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to say that I, I'd like to make a connection between what's going on now and actually um, um, a book that, um, that just came out uh, and it was just released um, a couple of weeks ago. So I thought I would mention that, but it's really, I wanted to make a connection with what our nursing colleagues, uh, Allie Years and my colleagues are, are going through right now. These are very, very hard times for nurses, but I'd like to say that um, nurses know what it's like to be called to action. You were a veteran. I've worked in disaster. Nurses really know 
what it's like, whether you're, you are a veteran or been called to disasters or working on the front lines or teaching on faculty, we're a profession that's always up for the occasion. You know how we are. And so I probably around three and a half years ago, I mentioned earlier in the interview, I lost my husband through a biking accident and had the, the horrible experience of being with him in an intensive care unit for 10 days before I lost him, before I had to turn, you know, help the nurses um, turn off that machine at the end, which was the hardest thing that I've ever done, certainly. But um, I kept a journal for, for a year and it started at the beginning of my husband's accident and through the entire ICU experience and then thereafter. And uh, part of the book is about my own personal journey but there's a good chunk of it, too, around, um, you know, what it's like to be a family member um, in a healthcare facility when you're a, a clinician and you see things in different light and you see when people are compassionate and when they're not compassionate. And I, I take the opportunity in this book to talk about two nurses who, who showed extreme compassion and what it's like to be a compassionate human being. And um, so I wanted to mention um, that knowing when we see the pictures on TV now about um, how nurses are going into rooms with their iPads and there's not families around and they have to be that link between the family and a dying person um, it's just, it brings me back to three and a half years ago to what a couple of those nurses did for me and during non-COVID times. Um, but, but how special this profession is. Um, but that book has just been released, um, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And okay. it's called Resetting because that's how I, I determined my life to be. It's, it's been a major resetting process when you lose uh, such an important person in your life. And it's resetting an unplanned journey of love, loss, and living again. So um, I wanted to mention that, again, within the context of compassion, my latest uh, passion, and as I see it now being played out on TV, we're so proud, aren't we? Uh, we are. We definitely are. And thank you for sharing that. And so sorry for your loss. But uh, we learned so much from other people's experiences. So the fact that you uh, took that and made it into a book, uh, I'll have a link on this link for this uh, on my website as oh, well. That'd be for, great, Ali, yeah. for any of our listeners that want to go straight to your book and order, I'm going to go straight to your book and order oh, right now <laughs> after we're done here. Uh, so looking forward to that read. Uh, with that said, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I know you're very busy. Uh, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayyip. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.